Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And thank you to Chris Gaffney for Great Voices. Now it's Tuesday home time and today the winners of the US Food Security Prize with Beverly Bell, part two of journalist and researcher Nick McClellan's Month in Japan. A report back from the rallies in Bendigo on Saturday and the APAN study tour to Palestine and neighbouring countries. But first, let's hear it from Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jane Lister, when the weather vane blowing with the wind award of the week must go to the US of the UN of the US of the world, big supremo hopeful Hillary clinging on. We spoke last week how the signing of the US Arab Trans-Pacific Stop Evil China Not-So-Free Trade Agreement shows just how untruly was he these long-haired, commie, greeny, wooden worker and iron lots are who abuse our environmental laws. Well, gold seems to have lost its glitter. It was the gold standard of trade agreements. Hillary gave us our instructions on it when she does, when she deigned to visit us three years ago, but now it's fool's gold. I am not in favour of what I have learned about it, Hillary campaigned. I don't believe it's going to meet the high bar I have set. Well, when we look at the man she married, we know she's always set the bar high. In this case, she wants to protect US Arab jobs, raise wages, protect national security. Obviously a matter of principle. Three years to think about it. The transmogrification from Secretary for US Arab World State to candidate, or as one of those myriad of Washington so-called think tank people commented, it's a bit of a telltale. The wind is blowing in a certain direction and she's fairly adept at monitoring sediment and changing tack. Oh yes, nothing like firm principle in a candidate. Hillary, your weather vane blowing with the wind award is on its way across the Pacific. On which thought we'd check on today's version of this USR bombing of that Syrian Médecins Sans Frontières hospital, accidentally striking it laser-like four times in an hour. It's like a serial, isn't it? The daily stumbling explanations. Here we are. Today's version is... Condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing. Oh, and the US Army is really sorry and condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing and the Pentagon will investigate the Pentagon. Caesar, render under Caesar. Oh, and the whole world, all lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy must condemn evil Russia for indiscriminate bombing. And I'm looking for a scoop. What, what will be tomorrow's version? God knows. Oh, well, nice try, but we'll just have to wait. But seriously, it is important we recognise the difference between good and evil in these matters, between good war as peace and bad war as evil, as war. We've also asked our very own minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers, to join us in this discussion with the US Arab Secretary for World State, John Caring for Train Killers. Uh, John, Zion shooting non-country, non-people Palestinian kids for throwing stones. That one's a no-brainer. 
those Zion U.S. of made bullets are protecting liberty, freedom, and democracy, lovers of, while those stones are evil terrorist missiles aimed at destroying democracy, destroying freedom. Uh, but the Zion train killers are in the kids' country. Those kids have no country. Uh, Julie, our independent position. I agree with John, independently. Okay, uh, Turkey, Kurdish peace march, terrorist bomb, mass death and injury. Uh, this one's more difficult until we get more information or concoct more. Uh, sorry, intelligence can reveal the truth. If those bombs were placed by our very great friend, the Turkish government, then this was liberty, freedom and democracy in action just before a true democratic election against terrorists posing as a peace march. If this was the evil Kurds bombing themselves, this was evil terrorism personified. Although, let me say, in northern Iraq, there are some good Kurds. Hard to believe they're the same people. If this was the evil Daesh death cult, as your former big supremo quite properly labeled them, this was even more evil. So, so we need more information on that one. Uh, Julie? I agree. We need more information before we can reach our independent conclusion. But we, too, have great respect for the Turkish government. Right. Now, now this week in Yemen, Saudi airstrikes on a wedding party killed at least 15 guests and wounded another 25. Saudi is a great believer in liberty, freedom and democracy, a great friend of the USR, a great friend of democracy. And the experience of the USR, and therefore true blue Aussie in Iraq and Afghanistan, has proven just what nests of terrorism, terrorist fronts, evil wedding parties are. Lascivious breeding grounds of future terrorists, not dissimilar to terrorist hospitals run by those evil medicine sands borders people we applaud our saudi allies for their brave campaign against terror uh, julie we have an independent view on this matter which just happens to coincide with everything my very close friend john just said we too are acutely aware of the terrorist threat posed by evil wedding parties uh, thanks john thanks julie Good of them to help us clear up what sometimes seems a bit confusing to we mere lay people. Back here is the caring business class fights to create jobs, its very raison d'etre, by slashing wages which ignorant workers who just can't comprehend the delicate flower that is the economy fail to see, prevents them from getting work or prevents other workers from getting work, that lifelong devotee to those workers, Socialist Party Supremo and would-be big Supremo, little Billy Shorten ambition, to, to uh, leapt to their defence, the workers that is. A man who has devoted his life to the interests of workers would never defend the caring employers. OK, OK, he might know that the interests of workers correlates to the interests of caring employers and despair that some workers can't comprehend that and indeed will come to his ex-union putting that principle into extreme practice just this week. But he came out fighting over penalty rates and what a brilliant, basic working class argument. Penalty rates, God's gift to workers, stump the table, are the difference as to whether or not they can afford to send their kids to a private school. 
Good heavens. Imagine a world where workers couldn't send their kids to a private school to mix with their future caring employers. It's as difficult to imagine as a future little Billy socialist government not spending money on the state school system. Although why bother when socialism, little Billy style, decrees no one deserves to go there anyway, so public education is a waste of money. Where would workers be without little Billy? Well, where would workers be without little Billy's ex-union, Trublowasi Workers' Union, which agreed Thursday with Port Kembla caring employer Blue Scrape the Workers Steal Their Wages that the company could steal their wages. Recently struck new wage agreement abandoned, a three-year wage freeze, workers up to 20 grand a year worse off, real figure, Changes to conditions which, surprise, surprise, don't absolutely benefit the workers. 500 job cuts. With just one condition to be settled, the 30 million handout, again real figure, the company also demands from the New South Wales government to keep the plant running. Yes, wage cuts, wage freeze, conditions gone, jobs gone, massive public purse handout. What has the company given up in this deal? The pain of having to sadly let go workers, the pain of cutting workers' wages. But, but having said that, we feel it is a win-win situation. Don't suppose the union ever considered just maybe the workers could run the place themselves because they obviously don't need the boardroom, which is rubbing its hands all the way to the bank. We'd imagine with that union that'd be the first thing they'd think of. After all, their former supremo little Billy and his successor, Paul Who's Poor Now of Muck Quarry the Prophet's Bank, never stopped working for the interests of workers. Imagine what the deal could have been if they hadn't fought their guts out for those who fork out their union dues. Thursday morning, they were expressing concern over the sellout, or sorry, the, the negotiations. They were worried there was a fair bit of unrest among the bloody selfish workers who saw a few flaws in the proposal, and the deal they'd stitched up with the caring employer mightn't get through. But by late Thursday, they were able to breathe a sigh of relief, have a celebratory drink in the caring employer's boardroom to toast common sense prevailing. Oh, and former ACTU big gun and Socialist Party Minister Greg Commieboy helped them stitch up the deal. Obviously, he too didn't think the silly workers could run the place on their own. They need the wisdom of the boardroom. The Troublewasi Capitalist Review, speaking for the caring employers, said the deal was laudable and will have to be continued. So watch this space now they've got a precedent which makes the Nuclear Hawk AC2U Wages and Incomes Accord look like a fourth volume of Dust Capital. Oh, and finally, good to see Volkswagen joining a long list of great caring employers like Lord Rupert of Wapping, for instance, or $7.11, where no one above the level of the $10 an hour cleaning staff had the slightest idea there was anything untoward going on. Because really, there wasn't just normal business practice. Good afternoon. And that, of course, was Mr. Kevin Healy. Hoy there, shipmates. This is Captain Trash from the Port Phillip Echo Center in St. Kilder. Did you ever hear the crow in the sky going, ah, ah, ah? That's the 
Stand for Reuse, Reuse, Recycle. And you heard it first on 3CR. World Food Day is celebrated every year around the world on the 16th of October in honour of the date of the founding of the Food and Agricultural Organisation of the United Nations in 1945. The day is celebrated widely by many other organisations concerned with food security, including the World Food Programme and the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm speaking now with Beverly Bell, the coordinator of Other Worlds, a women-driven education support collaborative. Bev has worked for more than three decades as an organiser, an advocate and a writer in collaboration with social movements in Latin America, the Caribbean, Africa and the US. Bev, we know there is a World Food Day, but why is it necessary? Jen, there should be no World Food Day. There should be no need for it because hunger itself is unnecessary. We know that there is enough food in the world to feed one and a half times the global population. The problem is not one of scarcity, which is what we are told by the powers that be. The problem is one of poverty and inequality. So if you look at the World Food Prize that is being awarded this year by the UN, that has been awarded every year for several decades, you will see that the winners this year and in other years are people who are focused on either technological solutions to hunger or pro-corporate solutions, as in two years ago when Monsanto scientists won the World Food Prize, or they are focused on better means of distribution. Well, that's not the problem. The problem is one of access. The problem is in the fact that there is so much concentration of wealth and resources in the world that the majority of people go hungry every day. One of my favorite quotes is by Jean Vigor, and he is the former UN rapporteur on the UN Commission on the Right to Food, and he says, every child that dies from hunger is a child assassinated. So our hope in giving the Food Sovereignty Prize and our hope in the Food Sovereignty Alliance, that is the coalition that is giving the prize, is to promote a world where farmers small farmers and family farmers are able to grow their food, defend their lands and water and agricultural systems that they need to do that, have land reform so that there is adequate land distributed, and then for a world in which people have enough resources to be able to access the basic calories that they need to survive for no more assassinated uselessly dead children. And who are the members of the alliance? The U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance started about four or five years ago, and it is a coalition of dozens of organizations from small farmers to agricultural cooperatives to 
nonprofits that are working on the right to food, like my organization, Other Worlds, to immigrant rights activists, to migrant farm workers. And how did you choose the two winners this year? There was a prize committee that chose them out of many nominations. One thing that we love is that both of the groups are comprised of African descendants and black farmers, and in one case, farmers and fisher people, who are both working to defend their lands, which have been taken from them through long patterns of structural racism and corporate takeover of seemingly everything. So in the U.S., the greatest movement sweeping our reactionary country is Black Lives Matter. And so we are very happy that this prize is going to two groups who are proving in their own ways just how much Black Lives Matter and are doing the work that is key to having food for all, which is the ability of farmers and communities to keep their own lands. Now, one is in North America and one is in Central America. Can you give us the details of the two groups? Sure. They are groups that I have been following and working with for decades, and I am just so happy that they are getting this honor that they deserve. The first group is the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. And to give your listeners in Australia a bit more background, the deep south of the United States is where, well, slavery happened actually all over the U.S., but it was official and most especially disgusting in the deep south. There has been a process of disenfranchisement of Africans and African descendants ever since slavery. So even though, of course, there is no formal slavery in the U.S., although I should say as a parenthesis that there are many kinds of slavery existing here as all over the world, there is still disenfranchisement of black people, especially in the Deep South, where the plantation structures and the systems of racism and classism continue most strongly. I am from the Deep South, so I say this advisedly. The Federation of Southern Cooperatives started in 1967, which of course was a year of total upheaval all over the globe, and in the U.S. it was a year of tremendous ferment of black organizations for their civil rights. The five largest civil rights organizations in the U.S. got together in 1967 and said, well, it's good to have civil and political rights, but we must also have economic justice for black people. So they formed the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, which today is spread across 13 states in the Deep South, including Texas, Louisiana, Georgia, South Carolina, Mississippi, many states, and which is 95% African-American farmers. And one thing that is so especially important about this federation is that they are working to fight back the systematic loss of land. Today in the United States, less than 1% of farms are owned by black farmers. And so they are working to support each other as members, and they are also engaged in legislative advocacy, advocacy and judicial advocacy for the defense of black lands. The other group is in Honduras, 
and it is called the Black Fraternal Organizations of Honduras, or OFAME, by its Spanish acronym. Honduras is especially interesting politically because it is the country in the world that has the highest level of homicide, including even countries at war. It has the highest level anywhere in the world of gender violence. And in a report by Global Witness that came out a few months ago, according to 2014 data, it is the country that is the most dangerous in the world to be a, an environmental defender. But Honduras is also interesting because of its extremely strong and fierce degree of grassroots organizing that we hear very little about. And so for that reason, again, we are so happy about this Food Sovereignty Prize. Orphanate is a group of black indigenous peoples called Garipuna. They are about 200 years old. They are a merger of indigenous peoples who were in Honduras when the slave ships arrived with kidnapped Africans, and they now represent the mixture of those two peoples across 46 communities on the Atlantic coast. And they are working very hard against threats from the Honduran government, which is strongly backed by the U.S. government, and also by multinational corporations, of course, backed also by the Honduran and the U.S. governments, and in this case, drug traffickers, as well as tourism, because they have beautiful, beautiful beaches, which the elite love to own. And they have worked very, very hard in trying to defend their lands. And right now, there is a case that they have brought to the Inter-American Court of Human Rights to claim that the conquest of their land is illegal because it violates the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. And that, and a decision on that case is expected very soon. You mentioned Monsanto before. What is the push in your area of the world, or what is the saturation of your part of the world with GMO seeds? GMO seeds are everywhere, and they are in many places even where it is not legal for them to be, but especially in such crops as corn, whose pollen flies easily through the wind, they are taking over world crops, primarily corn and soy. It's very, very hard to keep organic seed stocks protected against GMO stocks that are flying in the wind to the next farmer's fields and on and on. There is a very strong movement in the U.S., as I hope that there is in Australia and that there is all over Latin America and Africa and Europe and Asia and many, 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 many countries to fight back against GMOs and against Monsanto. In the U.S., there is a very strong campaign called Millions Against Monsanto, and in this country, where political consciousness is very, very low and rates of activism are very low, I would say that together with Black Lives Matter, the other movement that is strongest is the movement against GMOs and against corporate agriculture. And Monsanto, of course, is public enemy number one. 
And water, the access to water is, is vital. I know in Honduras they're building dams that restricts the access of water for small farmers. What's happening there at the moment? In Honduras, there are plans to build dozens of new dams. I just spoke with one of the leaders about two weeks ago on this very topic, someone from another indigenous organization in Honduras, and the grassroots people, especially indigenous peoples and small farmers, are trying hard to resist these dams. It's very difficult because some of the dams are planned to be erected in jungles and in other areas where the wild rivers are, but there are no roads, and folks are so poor there that they don't have cell phones, they don't have much access to organizing or to reaching out, and that is why there are groups, uh, a few groups in the U.S. and a few groups elsewhere who are working hard to organize against these dam corporations that are stealing indigenous land in Honduras. And as I mentioned, in that country, the organizing, the pushback against the theft of rivers and dams has been met with literally hundreds and hundreds of assassinations by the right and by the landed gentry and by the Honduran government in the last few years. Could you talk about a couple of the other entrants who didn't quite get the prize but have been equally careful of their land and protecting the people's right to have a proper food source. I was not on the prize committee and I, uh, who did not receive the awards is they did not make public. But what I can tell you from our work at the small organization, the women's group where I work, Other Worlds, is that there are grassroots groups everywhere around the world working to defend food sovereignty which goes beyond food justice and it goes beyond food security and says that not only does everyone have the right to eat in quality, adequate quantity, and as needed, at the time needed, but that global food systems as well as national and local food systems must give the sovereignty to each nation to be able to control its own food and must give the needs and resources that farmers have, as I mentioned earlier, and fisher people, harvesters and timber cutters, etc., to sustain what they are, forest stewards, I should have said, not, not cutters, uh, to sustain what they need in order to produce what the rest of the world needs so as not to be hungry. And as we know, Jan, the number one threat to all of that is the global economy in which multinational corporations have more power than even governments. And so food sovereignty involves not just local growing, not just wonderful local food systems, which moves food from the farmland, say, to very, very poor areas in urban centers, but it also means that trade regulations and other economic policy must be shifted so that nations can preserve and protect domestic production over corporate buyout and corporate theft and corporate dumping of foods. Can you talk at all about the TPP, which has just been signed, the Pacific Trade Agreement? Can you talk about that at all and what that might mean for small farmers and fisher people? 
Yes. Well, the TPP would be horrible in the U.S., as in the Americas, as in everywhere else in the world. This giant secretive trade agreement promises, as best as we can understand what might be in it, given Obama's policies and given current history on trade issues, suggests, or more than suggests, lets us know that it would very much undermine local agriculture in addition to basically everything else that we in the world hold near and dear for the survival of people in the planet. There are a lot of people fighting, tribal peoples, farmers, activists of all stripes are putting themselves together to fight the TPP. And we were very pleased this week to learn, last week, that Hillary Clinton, the front-runner Democratic presidential candidate who promoted the TPP for years in her role as Secretary of State under President Obama, has now come out against it. And all of the Democratic presidential candidates have also come out against it. So it is not yet a done deal, and people will continue raising their voices and their fists and their pens and fighting back in any way that they can so that the basic goods that we need to survive as a global citizenry, like small family agriculture, uh, can be protected. I think that is happening in many of the countries who are affected by this. You're talking about the the Federation of Southern Cooperatives. What's the access to food stocks these days? I know around Australia there are certain areas of the sea which are very stressed because of overfishing. Is that, is that a problem also in your area? I have not heard about that in the U.S., but I must say I do not work with fisher peoples closely in the U.S., and it may be where I have heard about it in the Americas is very, very much in the states, that the, in the countries that depend on the oceans but that are very low income and have little control over their food systems and economic systems and environmental systems because of domination, of course, by the U.S. And here I refer specifically to the countries of the Caribbean and Central America. And I have seen fisher people there organizing and trying to demand and trying to win different fishing policies that will protect their local production again, once again, in contrast to fish and other sea food that is being imported from other countries, even to Pacific nations, for example. It's very hard for farmers even to have local markets, excuse me, fisher people to have local markets to fish. But of course, beyond the overfishing and the lack of local market access is environmental degradation. And here is where, once again, we have to look at the monsters of the world, the um, large industrialized nations and their trade packs that have systematically refused to protect low-income countries or any countries or anywhere on the globe, actually, from the environmental effects that are killing off reefs, which, for example, are needed to protect a lot of marine life and are degrading the well-being of the waters and thus undermining the food stocks in the waters. 
Thursday the 16th of October is World Food Day. Is that the day the prizes are being awarded and what are the prizes? The World Food Prize, that which is given with a lot of corporate money, comes with a very large monetary award to its winners who, not surprisingly, are individuals. Uh, reflecting the idea of corporations that individuals can make the big changes. The Food Sovereignty Prize in exchange goes to grassroots movements whom we know to be the only source of true and lasting solutions for their own countries and their own problems. They don't hold the power, but we do know that in unity and in numbers, we as organized people hold strength. The prize for the U.S. Food Sovereignty Alliance is not monetary. There is a lovely plaque given and there is a big ceremony to be held in Des Moines, Iowa, which is at the heart of the U.S. Farm Belt and which is very, very corporate controlled agriculture that is grown there. And we are getting lots and lots of press on these two groups. The Black Farmers Association of the Deep South, again, the Federation of Southern Cooperatives, and the Afro-Indigenous Peoples of Honduras, called the Black Fraternal Organization of Honduras. So there is lots of attention and media and love. (laughs) There is no money, because our side does not have money. And we also know that money is not what is going to change the world in the end. Thanks, Bev. Thank you, Jen. It's always wonderful to speak with you. And that was Beverly Bell. I spoke to her in her home in California, USA, yesterday, talking about other worlds, the human rights food activists in the United States, working with people in Latin America, Africa, the US itself, and the Caribbean. You're listening to 3CR. The time is 4.32 and a bit. Left After Breakfast presents the legendary Left After Lunch, a very special getting-to-know-you day and fundraiser where you will rub shoulders with legendary luminaries and swap stories with other legendary listeners. Tickets are $25 and $30. So come on down for Left After Lunch on Sunday the 1st of November from 1pm to 4pm at Eco Centre St Kilda Botanic Gardens. Visit 3cr.org.au for more information. Continuing my interview with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan, who spent a month in Japan. He concluded last week speaking about memorials to those who died and were injured as a result of the atomic bombing of the two cities in Japan during World War II. And so there's battles through the bureaucracy. Just uh, while we were there, the Japanese Supreme Court ruled that atom bomb survivors living overseas could receive the compensation that they were due under Japan's laws for what are called hibakusha, nuclear survivors. There is a legislative system that people's medical costs, for example, can be reimbursed by the government if you can show that you're an atom bomb survivor or the descendant of an atom bomb survivor, a hibakusha. And for Koreans, Chinese and others living overseas, in the United States even, 
the Ministry of Health decided that they couldn't pay pensions or medical reimbursements overseas because they couldn't ensure that it was being spent properly and so on. So they had to fight all the way to the Supreme Court. A Korean survivor took a case in 2011. So after four years of battling through the courts, Japan's Supreme Court, just in September, just last month, recognised that Japan's Ministry of Health should pay for atom bomb survivors living overseas as well as in Japan. And that's some 4,200 people are affected by that legislative victory. So even today, you see that Japan's ministries are engaging in historical revisionism and refusing to accept the responsibility that Japan has to people affected by Japanese militarism. You have mentioned before the, the comfort women. Yeah, and There's that's so a major struggle. There's so many of those, isn't there? Major struggle with an ageing cohort of women who are affected by uh, Japanese policy. Very the, strong women who come forward still demanding their rights. Very much so. There's an academic named Yuki Tanaka uh, who's lived in Australia and works uh, with uh, in Hiroshima as well who's written uh, really important books about Japan's violations of women's rights and other human rights, about military experiments and prisoners and so on, uh, showing this dual face that Japan was a victim of terror bombing during the war. The fire bombings, particularly of major cities, caused enormous numbers of deaths. The bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki was a war crime. But there is also uh, another side to Japanese militarism that neighbouring countries, particularly China, Korea, uh, even though Korea is a very strong US ally, Korea is concerned, obviously, about North Korea and uh, um, China. They still are very critical of the Abe government and its refusal to acknowledge the history and, indeed, the revisionism that tries to present Japan's role as positive at that time. So part of the push towards having a normal military is also suggesting that Japan is a normal player and it's very much integrated into Western-driven defence against China, against North Korea. Can I pick up on a few of the things you've been talking about, Nick? The nuclear issue, how many of the nuclear power plants are now back in operation? There are the Sendai plant, which is in the south on the island of Kyushu, has been restarted, uh, and there are a couple of others, two others uh, currently being proposed. Uh, there's about 54 plants that were shut down after the Fukushima uh, accident in 2011. There is a a major problem that many of the plants in Japan are ageing. They haven't really built a lot of new nuclear power plants, and so many of them date back to the 60s and 70s, and they've already had attempts to extend the life of them. And one of the things that's happened is that the Fukushima incident forced the government to go and nuclear regulator to go and look at the safety in the plants and found that many of those built in the 60s and 70s when Japan's economy was beginning to boom They've just got lots of maintenance problems that really need to be fixed before anything should start. The Abe government has been pushing to reopen the nuclear industry, to re-legitimise the nuclear industry, but it's finding it very difficult. There are still thousands of people displaced from the prefecture around Fukushima. There are some areas that frankly will never be usable again because of contamination, but even other areas that were less affected, there are still some hot spots and there's a lot of work going on and a lot of challenge to the government. The government's saying, oh, these areas are OK, but independent scientists and activist groups and so on are going in and you know, documenting that there are still many problems. So there's still a lot of anger about the failure of government generally and authorities 
to deal with this situation and attempts to restart more plants than the Sendai plant, which has already been reopened, moving very slowly, simply because everywhere people are saying, hang on, let's check this, we don't believe you, uh, and there's a lot of mobilisation around that. And as I said, the sort of integration, the rally we witnessed in Shinjuku just uh, in late September had no nukes and no war. Um, Everyone was carrying a banner, uh, a little placard, and it had no nukes on one side, no war on the other, and people were flipping them backwards and forwards, two coins of the same side. Because um, Japan has attempted to develop a plutonium economy Um, right through the late 20th century, there was massive investment in trying to build fast breeder reactors. These are nuclear reactors that would use plutonium as a fuel rather than uh, uranium. And uh, millions, billions of dollars have been put into that unsuccessfully. Uh, the Rockershaw plant has been a, a signal failure and it started very briefly and after two months was shut down and has never begun again. There's been a series of fires in plutonium processing facilities and so on. It's been an ecological and an economic disaster. Japan has had much of its spent fuel reprocessed in France and Britain. Um, So reprocessing plants have been used in Europe to separate plutonium out from the spent uranium fuel. But there's been attempts to ship uh, plutonium, firstly in 1992, and later plutonium mixed oxide, what's called MOX fuel, from France and Britain back to Japan. There's been protests all around the world, including particularly the Pacific, because uh, the ships have to pass through the Pacific Islands' exclusive economic zones on the way back to Japan. That process is largely stalled because uh, things... And the nuclear industry is in trouble all around the world. I mean, here we have the South Australian government in Australia desperately trying to um, find new jobs to replace the car industry jobs that have been lost, and it's talking about a nuclear industry. Uh, There's people like Barry Brook in Adelaide have been pushing this idea of moving to new generation nuclear powers. But I noticed the Royal Commissioner came out the other day, even though he hasn't brought out his final report yet, saying, oh, look, it'll take decades before we could get nuclear power plants up and running in Australia because we don't have the trained staff, we don't have the infrastructure, the regulatory systems needed to regulate nuclear power. We could dump some nuclear waste in the deserts of South Australia, but to get a functional plant operating. So even the nuclear boosters who've got this Royal Commission off the ground in Australia are finding it difficult to justify why we should go nuclear rather than go renewable, given the time frames that it would take to get a nuclear system off the ground. Similarly in Japan, the fact that they managed to shut down their whole power system. And what happened to that? Because there were dire predictions, wasn't there? Well, Japan's used a lot more coal and it's blown their um, carbon footprint because they've had to bring out some dirty old coal plants to keep things going. But it's forced a debate in in Japan about energy systems that people thought would never happen, simply because Japan, like France, has such a high proportion of its electricity generated by nuclear power. Japan and France really are amongst the the largest users of nuclear power. Um, The very fact that Fukushima uh, happened has really brought uh, the debate not just about the generation of electricity, but the costs of clean-up and the cost of decommissioning. People have looked at each nuclear power plant, and you may have to spend 3 or $4 billion to shut it down. Cleaning up Fukushima is going to take billions of dollars for the next three decades. People are starting to say, hang on, is this the best use? And Japan's got quite an ageing population. It's a society in a lot of turmoil. It's a society with a lot of questions about its future, with an ageing population, 
but a reluctance to bring in migration. I mean, Australia's dealt with its ageing population by bringing in lots of young people from all over the world. And although that's a fraught process, as we know, in terms of asylum seekers, uh, we have a massive migration program, and Australia's been built on migration ever since the first invasion, whereas Japan has very tight-knit and a fairly limited immigration program. Um, but as the population ages, there are real economic implications about labour force mobility and so on. So Japan's struggling with all these questions about national identity, the integration with the Americans uh, and so on, and uh, relations with China, which is a close neighbour, and as we know, the emerging uh, economic power for the 21st century. What about the TPP in the farming sector in Japan? The Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP, has long governed in Japan because of its um, massive infrastructure and subsidy programs for agriculture in rural areas. As we travel around Japan, it's surprising the amount of rice still being grown, and so there's been a lot of protection for farmers uh, through tariffs and subsidies and, and other grants. Japan's under pressure to remove a lot of those tariffs to open up for, uh, for example, Australian rice growers and so on. So that whole system of patronage that's also based on massive in infrastructure, there's concrete bloody everywhere, there's railway systems all through the country, Shinkansen, fast tra trains, seawalls, you know, there's been, gee, I'd love to own a concrete company in Japan, they, you know, there's a, a massive infrastructure culture that the LDP has used government subsidies for the private sector to build things all through the country. But, once again, ageing infrastructure, no maintenance, similar sort of problem to America where the bridges are starting to fall down because they were built during boom times, but now in tough economic times there's a lot of problems. And so the TPP, the Abe government, has presented this as a panacea, closer integration, but there will be winners and losers, and there's a lot of angst about what that means, uh, just as in Australia, the way that the Americans have been pushing uh, certain provisions, such as around pharmaceuticals, that will benefit US corporations uh, to the detriment of uh, farmers and workers in uh, Japan, in Australia and other countries. I think the other th question is that Japan is looking, therefore, for new industries to expand, and one of them is the defence industry. And we have the situation where um, Australia, which is proposing to build a number of new submarines to replace our Collins-class submarines in future generations, there's a program officially slated at $20 billion, but probably going to blow out to about $40 billion Australian dollars to build new submarines. And Japan, Germany and France are all tendering for the contract to build those submarines. As you'll know, there's been a major debate about whether they should be built in South Australia or um, offshore. Uh, David Johnson, the former Defence Minister, famously said, or two Defence Ministers ago, famously said that ASC, Australian Submarine Corporation, couldn't build a canoe, uh, and Christopher Pine and other South Australian Liberal MPs have been desperate to protect the shipbuilding industry in uh, South Australia, and so there's been a lot of efforts to do that. When Tony Abbott, as Prime Minister, visited Japan, uh, he met with Shinzo Abe, and they reportedly talked about the possibility of Japan taking the lead in the submarine construction program, and that would benefit Australia and certainly Japan and obviously the United States, where Japanese submarine technology, which is quite advanced because of their uh, maritime deployments around uh, uh, China and so on, would allow the transfer of technology from Japan to an Australian-built submarine, but would effectively closer integrate Australia, Japan, US into 
what's called interoperability, you know, the collaboration and technical cooperation between our defence forces. And um, there's a lot of disquiet that Abbott was purported to have done a a deal with Abe, although that's never been fully documented. But the suggestion often made is that, you know, Abbott had promised essentially the Japanese that they would get the contract. And what we've seen is part of the battle going on around the Abbott government and, uh, you know, Christopher Pine and the South Australians saying, no, no, we need shipbuilding to protect jobs. And essentially uh, what we've seen is the tender process has pushed uh, the Japanese to say, okay, we'll build part of the submarine in Australia. The Germans and the French have already said that. They're quite happy to, to do con- some of the construction for the submarine program in Australia. Uh, the French uh, TCNS, which is the uh, French privatised corporation, used to be a government-owned corporation. The uh, Direction Nationale de Construction des Sous-Marins is uh, set up an office in Sydney, for example, part of the tender process to try and say that they will do uh, Australian-built part of the process. The Japanese sent a delegation, I think, in August uh, to try and persuade Australian industry that there would be cooperation. So the Japanese are not really used to arms sales, and it's going to take a while, and this is really part of the picture. You know, with American encouragement, the integration of Japan into Western alliance forces is well underway. Abe's had a significant victory to get this package through, but it's a pyrrhic victory in the sense that he's mobilised a lot of popular opinion against his government. I think the TPP, if as is likely, Japan uh, will have to make concessions to open up its agricultural industry and will also cause a lot of anger in traditional constituencies that have voted for the LDP. So the forthcoming um, upper house elections, I think we'll see a significant defeat for Abe's forces, and the battle goes on. What's really important is that the mobilisation of a new generation of peace activists who are debating about Japan's place in the world, about Japan's relations with other countries in the Asia-Pacific region, about how to maintain Article 9, that's only a, a thing for good for Australia. And that was journalist and researcher Nick McClellan finishing his interview about his month-long visit to Japan. Promote your community event, be it a rally, meeting, fundraising gig, call-out for entries or piece of Agiprop on 3CR's online community calendar. Not-for-profit community organisations and activist artists are invited to upload community event information and event poster or photos. Go to 3cr.org.au and click on Add Your Community Event Here on the right-hand column under Community Events. 3CR, spreading the seeds of dissent. On Saturday, rival rallies were held at Bendigo by two groups. One, the anti-racist group, under the umbrella of the Bendigo Action Coalition, and second, members of nationalist and far-right groups demonstrating ostensibly against the Council's approval of a mosque. I'm speaking with Debbie Brennan, spokesperson for the group Campaign Against Racism and Fascism, a community activist coalition dedicated to opposing the views of the far-right group Reclaim Australia and their hangers-on. First, Debbie, I'd like to clear up a misconception which I believe was deliberately promoted by 
the mainstream media and the police that the anti-racist protesters were a rent-a-crowd from Melbourne. The counteraction last Saturday was organised by the Bendigo community. They formed a coalition called the Bendigo Action Coalition. They led last Saturday. However, campaign against racism and fascism, which has been counter-organizing against the neo-Nazis since April, in solidarity, of course, supported the Bendigo community. There were many of us, many people coming into Bendigo from Melbourne and surrounding areas, but again, that action was led by the Bendigo community. And of course, those of us who don't live in Bendigo see this battle to stop the fascists wherever they show their faces as our battle too, which is the meaning of solidarity. And of course, we have to acknowledge that the people of Bendigo have put up with an awful lot over the last year or so. Absolutely. They've been battling very hard against Islamophobia that's been played out in opposition to the construction of a mosque in that city. So while a minority of that community has been taking every legal action they could to stop that construction, the rest of the community has been organizing hard to counter this view that was emerging of Bendigo being an Islamophobic city. And, of course, the community has also been fighting very hard against the exploitation of the likes of the United Patriots Front of that opposition to the mosque. So the Bendigo community has really actually been put onto the front line of the bigger battle, the bigger fight. Saturday was a very positive part of that battle. Of course, the battle goes on. But on Saturday, there was pretty much a matching of the numbers. Our side, the anti-fascist side, had 400 to 500. The UPF side also had somewhere around four to 500, and that's something that still has to be addressed. However, last Saturday, the Bendigo community and all of us who went to Bendigo, we took the steps, the town hall steps of Bendigo. We rallied there. We marched through the streets of Bendigo. We confronted the UPF side, who remained isolated in a park in the city, and then we marched back to the town hall. So effectively, last Saturday was really the anti-fascist community of Bendigo, Melbourne, and surrounds taking the streets of Bendigo and claiming it as an anti-fascist town. One high point, by the way, I'll mention is that as we were marching back to the town hall from the park on a victory march, we passed a pub, the the Shamrock Hotel, which was crowded, the balconies were crowded with people who were there cheering us on. So that was just an added sense of that flavor of solidarity. So that's what turned it around and the fact that the Bendigo community led it. However, we do still have that battle ahead to completely defeat this attempt by the neo-Nazis to build a movement. Did you notice lots of people along the the route 
sort of people were taking notice of it or absolutely the streets were of course on a, a saturday afternoon the streets were busy people were along the sides watching us and the thing with I, I of course i was you know talking to um bendigo people during the day and some were saying that part of the community is still scared by that neo-nazi presence and so while we found many of the community community coming out in force on saturday there would naturally still be parts of the community who still have to feel that confidence in coming out and and joining as well facing fascists in a rural city would be a, a a very big deal and just where is this mosque is that the issue or is this a, really a side issue the mosque is i guess you could say call it a a catalyst the fact that that whole controversy over the mosque is actually i see it as part of the bigger whipping up of islamophobia that's been going on for the last 10 to 15 years the scapegoating of muslims that mosque controversy is really part of that organized effort by the far right to fuel that kind of scapegoating and the bigotry that comes from it and then of course for the UPF to use that controversy which they saw as a possible opportunity to get a foothold in Bendigo because of course listeners would know from April this year that their attempts to come into Melbourne have been defeated they've been routed every single time and they've been routed in cities and towns around the country so their use of that mosque controversy is something that's that's pretty significant that we have to deal with i guess again it does come back to that mosque question being a kind of a a, a symbol of this bigger fight well part of the bigger fight is also the new political party which is being launched here in australia in first today yes. the australian liberty alliance yes yes and that is something that we also have to take seriously in this bigger picture because when we talk about bendigo or melbourne or anywhere we're actually talking about a global issue and the creation of that far right fascist political party which is being spearheaded by the far right q society is something we need to take note of because what the fascists have been doing in Europe is that they have been using electoral platforms the establishment of their parties and they've actually been winning some elections in the European Union and they've been also gaining you know some sort of electoral mileage as we know in Greece of course in the UK and so on so to see this creation of the Australian Liberty Alliance is really the fascists who are trying to build a movement taking on that electoral platform as well so we do have to take that very seriously 
And this is modelled on the the party of the the far right Dutch person. The, the, his party is the Party for Freedom. And you think, well, mm. freedom from what or from whom? Well, exactly. And of course, it is that whole the, the classic white supremacism. And of course, we know that white supremacism also includes the homophobia, the misogyny and everything else that fascism stands for. And to look at the platform of the Australian Liberty Alliance, which is so extremely Islamophobic, it is just absolutely, it, it, it's just really going for the jugular, that it is, as you say, what, what, is, what is the liberty, what is the freedom that we're actually talking about? Well, it's the opposite of those two words. But then you've got political parties and the security forces just reinforcing what these far-right parties and people are talking about when you've got these new laws coming in now which are going to virtually imprison 14-year-olds in their own home. It's a worry. And the thing is that the thing about fascism is that it plays upon what capitalism imposes upon us in our lives so in other words in a profit-driven economy that needs to exploit workers and oppress many groups in society then the example that you gave and the attacks on our general civil liberties for example or the forcing of remote aboriginal communities off their lands and we can just name a string of other examples. Those are things that are being done in a capitalist environment when an economy is disintegrating. What fascism does is that it takes those and it runs with those. And, of course, fascism is capitalism's final resort when it's absolutely desperately trying to continue to survive because fascism is actually the total assault on the working class and all of us who are oppressed within the society to completely crush our capacity to revolt and resist. So that's really where fascism fits into that broader picture of capitalism clawing back any kind of rights that we've had won and had in the past. There is another opportunity later this month on the 29th of October for people to add their voices against bigotry. Yes, that, that is one of those opportunities that actually opens a forum for our communities to be going to and to be putting our majority voices on that platform and I think that we have to create and grab every single opportunity like October 29th to do this. And it can be very intimidating for people to go to rallies like you did on Saturday because the media bumps it up to there's going to be fights and there's going to be violence and it turns many people off actually doing what they really want to do. Yes, and we saw this happening, of course, just before the July 18th mass mobilization here in Melbourne, where the media, who works alongside the, the police, they clearly have that intent to do exactly what you said, to do that scaremongering and to 
to paint a protest as two extreme ends of a line and that this is going to be a stoush. In fact, what they do is they use the classic stereotype of gang warfare, and that's what it sounded like prior to Bendigo when the, the police spokesperson was talking in those terms. The thing, though, is that while that kind of talk may succeed in scaring some people away, it doesn't really work because we still keep coming out in our hundreds, in our thousands, because we know what we have to do. Those of us who know what fascism is about, who know why we have to confront it every time it crawls out of the gutter, that we do need to go out there. And there's nothing stronger and more empowering than solidarity. That's what's actually going to be the more powerful force than that propaganda that's trotted out by the media. Finally, how do people get in touch with you and what do you hope to do in the near future? Campaign Against Racism and Fascism is a united front, which is a very special kind of a a formation. What that means is that the whole range of working class organizations, socialists, anarchists, Aboriginal justice activists, feminists, LGBTIQ unionists, and so on, come together. And while we may have our own political differences, we come together around points of agreement. And our points of agreement in the campaign against racism and fascism is that we are there to unite and fight against fascism and to stop fascism before it grows. Where to from here is that that united front needs to continue to grow. It needs to continue to expand. Listeners who want to be a part of that, unionists who want to bring their unions into the united front, or anybody who's a member of an organization, that's what needs to be done. So people who haven't yet seen the Facebook of Campaign Against Racism and Fascism can find our Facebook and like it, and they can also contact our mobile phone number and text the word subscribe, and the mobile phone number is 0422-726-843. Thank you. Okay. Bookings are now being taken for the 2016 APAN Australian Palestine Advocacy Network Study Tour, which visits Palestine, Israel, Lebanon and Jordan. What follows are comments from participants in a recent tour. I've done a bit of travelling to different areas of the world in my life, but nothing has been as rewarding as the APAN Study Tour. I couldn't recommend the tour highly enough, a life-changing experience. And one other, the spirit of the oppressed people was probably the biggest highlight, particularly in Gaza. From the refugee camps in Beirut to the ravages of the Gaza Strip, the tour will hear from Palestinians and Israeli communities, Australian ambassador, UN officials, human rights organisations, visit Australian-funded aid projects and much more. And if you want to learn more about the myriad contemporary and historical issues of the Middle East, this is a tour for you. 
The tour organiser is Lisa Arnold, herself no stranger to the Middle East and Asia. Lisa, I'd like to talk to you first about your previous work as a humanitarian aid worker, 20 years of working with the Middle East. I first came across the Middle East and the Arab-Israeli conflict in itself when I was 22, 23, and I went back to high school to do my HSC. And this was, we're talking like 1992, 93. So I first came across the issue then, and for some reason, the issue piqued my interest. So when I was looking to go to university in the early 90s, I was looking for a university where I could do Middle East studies of some sort. It took me to Macquarie University in Sydney, and from there I did a Bachelor of Arts in Politics, majoring in International Relations, Middle East Studies, and in my second year of Macquarie, I managed to do a student exchange to a Palestinian university on the West Bank called Birzeit University. That's where I probably fell in love with the, the country, with the people, with Palestine. Tell us what it was like back then. In the early to mid-90s, you're looking at the early Oslo period, early period of the peace process. So I arrived there in mid-95, stayed for a year to mid-96. It was a huge year of many different activities happening and many different international things happening as well in terms of the peace process. It was really a time of a word that doesn't come quite easy, but hope in a way. You could see that peace process was happening. There were things were kind of changing. But at the same time, there was all, always the analysis that agreements weren't good, but it was a change from what it was before, whether that being a change for the better or, or the worse, that all panned out over the next 25 years. But it was just a different period. And what was it like living there for a, a whole year? Because people go and visit for maybe a week, two weeks, six months, but it's a fair time to stay in a place. And it was my first ever time overseas, my first ever time with a passport and, yeah, having to tell your parents, by the way, I'm going to Palestinian University on in Palestine on, on the West Bank and and having them say, but isn't that a war zone? And it's kind of like, well, no, it's a lot of different things, but we'll, we'll work it out. Made great friends? Yeah, I was studying on an international students' program, so it was a lot of other Europeans there, some Palestinian-Americans come back to study. Yeah, and I w stayed in the, the women's dormitory in Ramallah. We would travel every day out on the service taxi out to Birzeit to the university. When I arrived, it was a time of, for want of, of how to explain things, of full Israeli occupation in terms of the Israeli occupation forces were within Ramallah, within the Palestinian cities themselves. And our dormitory was actually right beside the Israeli civil administration complex in Ramallah. So we had a, a checkpoint, you know, right at our front gate. That was for the first few months of that year, night, late 95. Uh, and then in the, you know, September of 95, you have the second Oslo Accord signed, which was where the West Bank then got divided up into areas A, B and C, and you had, over the following months, the Israeli forces withdrawing from the main Palestinian cities. They withdrew from Ramallah and 
Nablus and Tulkarim and the different uh, cities, you know, the uniforms changed from the, the green army uniforms to the blue Palestinian police uniforms. And essentially the occupation didn't go away. It just went down the road and erected another checkpoint. Being there at that time was just fascinating. And I look back on it now as a real time in history of, in, in my experiences of having been there at that time in the 90s of the early stages of Oslo and seeing the hope but then also seeing the problems that were starting to come out from the Oslo process to and I compare that to the next time that I came back to Palestine in 2004 and seeing just an absolute complete change the situation just got infinitely worse and then since 2004 I've been traveling quite regularly back and forth to Palestine and I swear every time it, the situation just gets infinitely worse again. Difficult to get back into Western society, I'd imagine, after staying there a year. What did you do when you came back? I came back to Sydney and I finished my undergraduate degree. I managed to find some volunteer work with a couple of Australian aid agencies. I knew I wanted to get into the NGO sector. I just had a full-time night job, as one does, and uh, which left my days free to pursue other interests. In try- so I volunteered at a couple of different aid agencies, and one of them was Union Aid Abroad Feeder. I was lucky enough that after 18 months or so, they managed to find a job for me. So that's where I got my first job into an Australian aid agency, yes. And of course, the feeder has long time supported Palestine and the refugees in the camps in Lebanon. Yes, yes, yes. And um, I actually came across a feeder when I was studying in uh, the West Bank in Ramallah in 95-96. There was another Australian woman there uh, studying at the university at the same time. And uh, of course, Australians tend to find each other when they're overseas. And she was uh, on a volunteer placement through a feeder with their local partner in Ramallah. So that's where I first heard of a feeder. So I knew when I went back to Sydney that I needed to, to look them up. And, and I did. And and did you go back to the Middle East with a feeder? Yes, I did. I had many roles. I had about 14 years or so with a feeder from you know, doing uh, the, the front of office administration roles to finance manager to eventually becoming project officer managing their Middle East program. So when I got that role, I was managing the Middle East program, so I would have to be travelling at least two, three times a year back and forth to their programming in uh, Lebanon and in Palestine. You're now working with APAN. Can you talk about that organisation? APAN is the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network and it's an organisation established in 2011. It's a membership-based coalition of Australian groups and individuals from all sectors of society. You have uh, uh, just the community groups, uh, you have uh, NGO sector c- members, we have members from the churches and um, from the trade unions. So it's a, a broad coalition of, of all these uh, different groups that are working on Palestine. The study tours, when was the first one? I began taking study tours to Palestine with when I was working with Afida. They started out as taking the Afida members and supporters and uh, unions to visit the, the projects that they were supporting. And Afida had a study tour program to many of its different countries, to East Timor, to Cambodia, to Vietnam. 2010 was the time 
you know, just a year after Operation Cast Lead against the Israeli aggression against Gaza. There was a lot of rallies and activism and people just questioning what's really going on there. So we at AFIDA decided that they would start to take a study tour back there as an opportunity for people to, to learn more about what was going on on the ground there. What was it like that year, months after devastation yeah, of 2009? This was, yeah, this was March of 2010 was the first group that we took into Palestine and I actually managed to get uh, that group into Gaza. So we were there within you know 12 months of the devastation of Operation Cast Lead. It was exactly that, devastated, to have the opportunity of these Australian civilian supporters to see, number one, the great things that Australian aid is achieving uh, with our partners on the ground there, but number two, also to see and speak and hear and listen to the stories of the Palestinians in Gaza was probably more important to the Palestinians of Gaza, I think, because you can go anywhere in Palestine and in the camps in Lebanon. The first thing that you will always hear is, welcome, please come in, sit, have a cup of tea, let me tell you my story. And that's hugely important. And it's one that I, I too try to impress with all of my groups when I take them in, that this is, this is what you know, our job is. It's because uh, these communities and uh, these, not just in the refugee camps, but all over, feel so very unheard out there in the world. The only thing that they will ever demand of you is, please take my story out. Do they also feel isolated? Is that another word to use? Yes, isolated. Yeah, the Palestinians in Gaza, not just in Gaza, also in the camps in Lebanon, uh, all over. They feel isolated and left Forgotten is a word they sometimes use as well. Particularly, I'd imagine, in Lebanon because it's not actually Palestine, so they're doubly removed, in a sense. Doubly removed, and I often say that, for me, I think the situation for Palestine refugees in Lebanon is the worst. Gaza is absolutely devastated now, but the situation in, in Lebanon, and it's... You know, I don't like to play the game of, of comparison. There is no comparison, really, but in Lebanon it is particularly bad because they're removed, obviously, from their homeland and because they also have absolutely no rights in the Lebanese system. Can you explain how that came about? OK, the situation for Palestine refugees in Lebanon is that they were never granted any rights in the country in terms of citizenship or access to educational health or uh, jobs and this was largely I think at the time a product of the times in terms of Lebanese government of the time you're talking 1948 49 wanted to make I think a, a political statement to the international community to say that these people are are not Lebanese they are not necessarily our problem they have a home to go to and it's up to the international community to make that happen. The Lebanese government at the time took that political stance to go to make a point to the world that the Palestine refugees do have homes to go to. But the problem is that the, the world community has let, has let the Palestinians down time and time again. Yes, completely. 
Yes, it's been going since 1948 for 67 years now. And until there's some kind of answer and some kind of acknowledgement, recognition of the core injustices of 1948, then that will be the only time that we need to, that there'll be any kind of a, an answer to this issue. It's not really for me to speak. I'm not Palestinian, so that's why I feel unsure about it. Now, the, the refugee camps in Beirut and around Beirut are part of the study tour. How many have you taken now, and can you talk about the impressions that people visiting go away with and how they interact with the people in the camps? Well, when I take the study tour to Beirut, we visit one refugee camp, in southern Beirut called Borja Brajne and I go in there with a Palestinian women's organisation called the Palestinian Women's Humanitarian Organisation and they host us into the camp for the day and they show us the various projects that activities that they do in the camp. They run a kindergarten, a nursery, they run youth programs they run uh, women's support programs and an elderly health care program, lots of different activities. So we spend the day in the camp visiting, for example, the kindergarten and nursery, visiting the youth centre, the disabled children's centre. We spend the day walking around the camp, so not just seeing this but also seeing the conditions in the camp and talking to the people that work on all these programs and then later in the day we'll actually do home visits. So we'll actually go to uh, people's homes, like say the parents of one of the children in the in the kindergarten or we'll go and visit a family with an elderly person receiving uh, health care and support, sit with them in their home and, and listen to them and their stories. People still in those camps with the, the front door key? Yes. Uh, one incident that happened to me, and this is something that I, I share with all of my groups and I take them to to the camp on study tours. And for me, this, this particular little story encapsulates everything about the Palestine refugees in, in Lebanon in particular. I remember many years ago I was interviewing Umm Muhammad and she, with her husband, ran the little grocery store just underneath the kindergarten in the camp and... We were interviewing her one day there and asking her about her life and where she came from in Palestine and about her family. And and like most elderly people, they would remember 60, 70 years ago, just like yesterday, like the back of their hand, they knew it all. She would be telling us about her village in Palestine the streets in the village this was our orange grove this was our how many trees we had and this was you know the name of the shopkeeper down the road da, 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 da. and we were trying to I remember trying to figure out you know exactly what her age was so I could put it in the article that I'm, I was preparing and so we asked her uh, oh, Muhammad so exactly how old are you and without missing a beat she says I'm 12 I look at her and we both go, oh, how, how can you be 12, oh, Muhammad? And she says, I was 12 when I left Palestine and that's when my life stopped. You know, and for me that just encapsulates 
everything. And it still brings a tear to my eye, that little story, but it's something that I share with all of the groups on the, on the study tour. And I think after then spending a day uh, walking around the camp and hearing similar stories from many different families and people and women and children in the camp, that people get it at the end of the day. This is the issue. Their life ended in 1948 and they're still sitting here and we're actually moving into third and fourth generation now. There's something wrong about that. Is there any guarantee that you'll get into Gaza? No, never. Gaza is closed from air, from land, from sea, from Egypt and from Israel. The only people that can get into and out of Gaza are humanitarian NGO workers, UN staff and Palestinians that have permits. It's the Israelis and the Egyptians that control that access. When was the last time you were able to take a study tour in? The last time I was in Gaza was actually just in August with the uh, APAN study tour group then. We visited the Australian aid projects of an Australian NGO called ACT for Peace, which is the international aid agency of the National Council of Churches in Australia. And ACT for Peace is also a member of APAN, so they generously allow us to visit their programming. And they do wonderful work with the uh, health clinics, uh, primary healthcare services. Are there difficulties getting into the West Bank at all? Checkpoints as a study group? No, there's no difficulties getting into and out of the West Bank there because there's, there's not really a border there to cross. The purpose of the Israeli government to more and more erase that border. So you can be in Jerusalem, you could be walking across the Green Line, which is the internationally recognised borders from uh, 1949, and not know it because it's not marked and there's no checkpoint there as such because you're in the centre of Jerusalem. You will see a difference in the neighbourhoods between West Jerusalem and East Jerusalem, but there's not necessarily what you would expect to be a border control between the East and West. And what are those differences? It's differences in infrastructure and services and levels of poverty. The Palestinian communities in East Jerusalem pay the exact same taxes, municipal taxes, as all other Jerusalem residents. However, they don't receive anywhere near the same amount of budget for schools, pavements, roads, basic infrastructure. Yes, you can drive around East Jerusalem and you'll know that you're in a Palestinian neighbourhood as opposed to um, a neighbourhood in West Jerusalem. While you're in the West Bank, do you stay in people's houses or you put up in hotels? No, the study store stays in a hotel in Jerusalem a bit more centrally located and allows people you know their time off to go to the old city to see all the the sites in Jerusalem as well so no I base in Jerusalem and then uh, we just do day trips out to Ramallah or to Bethlehem to the cities in the West Bank. We meet with the Australian representative office in Ramallah which is like the Australian I guess consulate to the Palestinian Authority and we learn from them about the work that they do, the Palestinian Authority and then also about the different um, aid projects that the Australian government funds uh, throughout the Palestinian territories. We then visit with different Palestinian civil society organisations. We visit with some Israeli civil society organisations as well. We try to get 
a picture, a sense of what the current situation is like because the, the current situation tends to change on the ground from hour to hour. For me, I see the study tour as uh, a way for people to see and hear and learn, for want of another word, from the horse's mouth. I don't quite know how that translates into Arabic or into English maybe, but yeah, because it's it's not for me to tell you what Palestine is about. It's It's for them. And what are the main questions that the participants ask while they're there? A lot of the questions are around, but how does this happen? You know, when when people see the wall and see how the, the separation wall is not on the green line, not on any internationally recognised border, but deep inside the West Bank and how it goes through a Palestinian neighbourhood and separates essentially Palestinian homes from Palestinian homes. Uh, Some of the questions are around, but how does the occupation work? You know, we can see Palestinians moving around. You know, what is this occupation? For me, I see the occupation as one of bureaucracy. It's an occupation where Palestinians are required to have permits from the Israelis to conduct almost every aspect of their lives. They need a permit to go to the one and only hospital that does cancer treatment in Jerusalem because they're a West Banker, ID Palestinian, for example. They need a permit to go to work, to their job in Jerusalem. Or for Gaza Palestinians, there's uh, no permits to work inside Israel anymore. So it's an occupation of uh, bureaucracy, and that's exactly how it works nowadays. How do people develop over those days as they see the situation on the ground? People tend to figure it out quite quickly. I find that it's not really my place to tell them this is what the situation is. All that's required is really just to, even just driving around, to point things out. This is where the separation wall is. This is where the green line is. People can then figure it out, really. This is what a settlement looks like. Point out the different infrastructure involved in an Israeli settlement in the West Bank. And people are, you know, they they tend to figure it out for themselves exactly what's going on. So it's not really for me to tell them what the situation is. You can really generally figure out justice and injustice on your own. Which... Israeli citizens do you meet with? One Israeli organisation that we meet with is the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions, of which Dr Jeff Halper was the former director and founder of that. And he's an incredibly valuable asset in terms of analysis and in terms of his analysis of the situation. So it's always very important to meet meet Jeff. For people listening, Lisa, is is there one reason why they should go on this tour in January or are there a myriad of reasons? Can you bring it all together? What people are going to get out of spending thousands of dollars travelling to the Middle East? What will it mean for them? What will it mean for the Palestinians? You know, for me, in working on and around this issue for the past almost 20 years now, 
the one thing that I learnt coming out of my experience at Burzate University all those years ago was that you can study about this issue, as in the Palestine-Israel issue, until you're blue in the face, but until you go and see what's on the ground, you have absolutely no idea what's going on. And this is what I say to all my study tour groups now and to anyone thinking of trying to figure out what's happening in Palestine and Israel. You can study about it until you're blue in the face, but until you see what's actually happening on the ground there, you have no idea what's going on. Of the groups uh, that I've taken, at the end of the tour they would say, actually now... I do understand how complex, complicated, but also how simple some of the issues are in a way, and that I never understood. They would say, you know, I never understood before what this was about. I've had professors, university academics, and people that have been active on this issue for decades themselves, have been publicly speaking about the issue for many years, many decades themselves. I've had them come along on the study tour and even then, at the end of the study tour, go, actually, you know, Lisa, I didn't know a thing. You've been listening to Lisa Arnold, who's the study tour coordinator for the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network. If you are interested in the tour, which goes in January, please give her a ring on 0409 329 570 or get onto Internet Palestine Study Tours. That's all for today. I'll be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. Stay tuned for Food Fight. <laughs> 